0: The following is a production of Government CIO Media.
1: Welcome to CyberCast. I'm Kirsten Todd. And I'm Roger Cressy. Today, we're pleased to welcome Grant Schneider on CyberCast. Grant is currently the United States Chief Information Security Officer at the Office of Management and Budget. And last fall, he took on a second role because one is not enough at the White House as a senior director for cybersecurity at the National Security Council. Grant, it's great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you, Grant. So we'll start with a retrospective. It's been 18 months since the release of the executive order 13800. When you look at the EO and its release and what's happened since then, what can you identify as the biggest successes of that executive order? And what do you see as the continuing challenges?
0: I think when we look at that executive order, A, it came very early in the administration and set a path and a direction for cybersecurity for where we need to go across the government and steps we need to take. It assigned 15 different deliverables all of which got done. So success. We did that, although- An important metric in government. Absolutely. Except those in and of themselves don't necessarily make us more secure. I think that two areas that I would highlight as being very successful have been around federal cybersecurity. So we've gotten a lot of momentum, a lot of awareness on federal cybersecurity, and that we now have a risk determination report. So we actually understand what the risk is. We're not comfortable with where it is. However, we understand the risk across the federal government. I think also around deterrence and holding people accountable. So we've done a lot that was, I believe, a result of the executive order around indictments, sanctions, holding malicious actors accountable for their behavior in cyberspace. And so I think that's definitely been a positive for the executive order.
2: So you mentioned risk and I think, you know, making risk management a central tenant of how the administration approached cyber was a great idea. I mean, Kirsten and I were present at the creation of the NIST Voluntary Cyber Framework. So, you know, every time we hear risk, we drink again, and it's <laughs> been important. So, how's that translated? You talk about the risk report. How's that translated in practical terms to the departments and the agencies? Because we can all talk about risk as being the priority, but are they realigning how they do their budgeting, their program, and their planning in a risk based way that's actually leading to results? Results that are not just measurable, but reduces the risk and increases the resiliency of multiple federal networks.
0: One of the things we've been able to do now is we are actually tracking federal agencies' cyber spend against the categories of the NIST risk management framework so that we can see Who's spending money where, and then we also now our annual FISMA report, and indeed our IG audits that the IGs do in compliance with FISMA are also around the risk management framework sections. So I would say we're gathering the data. So we're really a year now into that, and we're looking to be able to get trend lines to say who's doing well with their FISMA scores, how are they allocating their money, and see what those correlations look like. But at the very least, it gives us a dialogue that we can have on a daily basis with agencies, and a dialogue that CISOs and CIOs can have with their agency leadership.
2: So back in the day, FISMA, people lost their mind because it turned into a, not a worthless compliance exercise, but a compliance exercise that turned into a checklist that people did not put a lot of value in. <laughs> and somewhat unfair, but actually somewhat fair at the same time. So when it gets to the point where you determine based on all this information that a agency's falling short, question is, what will you do about it if, in fact, they are falling short? Will there be tangible budgetary consequences or policy consequences? How is the administration thinking about that?
0: I think where we're going to start with agencies that are falling short is with management and leadership engagement. And, you know, we talk about the other tools, whether it's a new policy or a budget. I think from a policy standpoint, it would be, are they falling short because... They can't comply with a policy. Are they falling short because there's a gap in our policy that we need to have in there? I think a lot of times agencies fall short from just they're trying to manage 100 different things and which one's most important, which really comes to management and leadership. So we're going to start with reaching out to secretaries, deputy secretaries, obviously CIOs and CISOs, and have those conversations to understand what are the driving factors behind the shortcomings, if you will.
1: So that's a really impressive incentive. And I think also the reaction that you've just shared is a very different one from what we've heard from government in the past. Because as Roger talked about, when we see sometimes these failings, it's automatically a stick, right? It's the punishment. It's the penalty. We see it right now. When companies fail, we drag them up to the hill and we tell them all the things that they're doing wrong. But what you're looking at under this risk management approach is how do we make this better? And so if we can look at how resources are allocated, not technically and not quantitatively, But the qualitative piece, because one of the key points of the executive order is saying, you, madam or Mr. Secretary, you are responsible for cybersecurity. So that may mean that they don't have the capabilities or the understanding. And so I think that approach is very refreshing to hear because it's an effective risk management tool for handling failure. And when something doesn't happen right, it's saying, "Okay, how do we make this better, not just how do we punish?
0: And I think we need to embrace some of the failures because, quite frankly, risk management means I prioritized some things higher than others. And if the failure or the incident happens at something that was lower on the priority list because we knew we could accept risk there, Then we actually need to find a way to congratulate people for doing a good job on risk management, not beat them up because someone got into one of their websites that wasn't that important in the first place.
2: So that's a huge education and awareness objective because people, when they talk risk, there still is that zero sum mentality and being able to understand that and put that out there, I think will make a big difference.
1: Well, and this goes to something I want to ask about your current position. But what you're also talking about is looking at government as a whole government. What we hear a lot in cybersecurity with federal government is, well, each agency is so distinct and unique. How do you create policies that can harmonize across them? But what you've talked about is we can learn from one agency what's worked, what hasn't, how those priorities are being executed, and how do we share that with other agencies so we can actually see that the whole of government can help each other. Which does lead to the next question about your role. As I mentioned, just because one role wasn't enough, you got two. (laughs) You have a position that straddles OMB and the NSC. And a lot of that our understanding was initially because you can't have policies that require budgetary authority and budget being made without the knowledge of budget. And also your knowledge and expertise in this space across government is unique. How is this position working and would you, you know, give it to a friend or a foe if you were passing it down? What have you found to work well and obviously where are some of the challenges?
0: I find that it's working well. And my OMB leadership and my NSC leadership find that it's working well also, largely because my OMB role for oversight of federal cybersecurity is, A, enormous because the federal government's so big, but it's also a big chunk of the portfolio on the National Security Council side. So Mm -hmm. I also have critical infrastructure in my NSC portfolio But what I find is most valuable is when you look at even federal cybersecurity, where OMB has authorities, has the power of the purse, if you will, and a lot of places where we can put policies into place, we can require agencies to take certain steps. NSC inside the White House complex has a significant amount of influence in this space. And so By being dual-headed, I actually get to be in conversations on both sides. So I get to go to meetings that as just, if you will, the federal CISO, I may or may not be invited to because it's outside of the sphere that NSC works in. And so I get a lot of exposure to NSC that drives a lot of the battle rhythm, if you will, on a daily basis.
1: Can you give us an example where that actually came together? Because when I first heard this position, it made so much sense. And given all of the discussions around how things are organized, et cetera, this idea of bringing the two together in theory and what you've said also in execution, is there any specific example that you could share where you particularly recognize the value of wearing both hats in relation to cybersecurity?
0: One that I will go to is the vulnerabilities equities process, which is a process by which the government, when we identify a vulnerability in a system, we go through a due diligence to determine whether or not we're going to disclose that to industry, to the manufacturer, to patch it, or is it something that is of unique value to the government for our offensive or in order to exploit for intelligence purposes? And so... I now chair the vulnerabilities equities process, which I have a really unique view because the entirety of my OMB role is on the defensive side. And yet, having an intelligence community background and sitting on the National Security Council staff, I understand that we need these offensive capabilities, and I'm able to be involved with those behind-the-scenes dialogues in so much as there are any, or at least be able to ask more probing questions, I think, because of that dual-hatted nature.
2: So when we had Jim Miller, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, on not too long ago, one of the things he said was that in his time in government and prior administrations, we were all guilty of self-deterrence. It was kind of like we got a gun to our head, you know, don't do anything from a cyber perspective or you might shoot yourself. And self-deterrence has actually hurt us on a number of occasions. The administration, I think, has made a very good argument of why we got to get out of that space Because of your intelligence community background, because you see the threat from perhaps a different perspective than some other folks, what do you see as the biggest opportunity to take advantage of a more forward-leaning or more proactive approach when it comes to defending the government's cyber networks?
0: Going back to the risk conversation we've had is first and foremost, identifying what is most critical across the federal government. We have a high value asset initiative and OMBs put guidance out on that. There's a binding operational directive from the Department of Homeland Security on that, that really gets to what is most important. Because if I don't know what's most important from a government standpoint, which may or may not be the same from an agency point of view, right? Different agencies may hold data that's of moderate value to them, but very important to some other agency who's actually picking that up. And so as we are able to take that program, have a generally prioritized list of what's most important, then we can bring and identify how to bring our national assets from a defensive standpoint to bear against those. So what makes the most sense? Where do we invest the capacity and capabilities that DHS has? Because obviously it's not unlimited.
1: So you've talked about defense, and I also want to get into the Homeland Security conversation because this is interesting offensively and defensively. I asked this both nine days out from the election, but also you know whether we were 90 days out from the election. What do you see as the biggest challenge in defending government networks? And if you could talk a little bit also about how we're preparing for the elections beyond what we know, what, what DHS is doing, but if there's anything that you're seeing in your role.
0: So I think the big challenge for government networks is that A, there's the disparity. So we have a whole bunch of different government agencies. We have lots of different networks inside of each of those. And we have a very varying degree of expertise of capabilities and of budget quite frankly to deal with those so our expectation per the federal information security modernization act is that every agency is able to defend themselves to the same degree as the next agency so we expect the office of personnel management to defend themselves to the same degree as the department of homeland security or department of defense the budget realities are that that's never going to be the case and so what we need to be able to do is A, put out policies that are general enough that apply to everyone, but also be able to have more amplifying guidance behind those policies. And this is where we partner with the Department of Homeland Security so that the agencies that are maybe less sophisticated, that they're able to have more of a checklist approach to how to help defend themselves as opposed to someone that's got a lot of engineering resources they can apply.
1: So in talking about the Department of Homeland Security, if we look at two years ago, at the end of the previous administration, there was a lot of discussion around what can we do to pull cybersecurity out of DHS. You know, there was a lot of discussion around where should this capability be held. Now DHS has demonstrated a capability and this overarching role across all the civil agencies. And a lot of that has come as a function of the administration policies, their effectiveness and the work that you've done. What do you think has been the critical point or what has been the reasons for the success of DHS so far in managing what it has managed? There's obviously a lot more to go, but why have we seen this maturity growth within this agency when it's been part of the creation of DHS and seeing all of the challenges? It's been a very rocky road, but in cyber, what we've seen in the last 18 months has been a real leap forward in looking at elections, which we'll get to, but the critical infrastructure, the National Risk Management Center, efforts that while people are looking at, okay, what are they delivering, they're at least looking in the right place, and we're seeing some progress in these spaces.
0: Part of it is the environmentals that we're living in. where. There is significant understanding or recognition today of the challenges with cybersecurity because it's not just that my email might not be working. It's that the viability of my entire organization, government or private industry could go away. And the dependency of the mission delivery for the federal government on good cybersecurity capabilities and practices is absolutely paramount. I think the fact that DHS has leadership that understands that and recognizes that, DHS is being forward-leaning and really working, I think, harder to engage with agencies, engage with agency leadership, with CIOs and CISOs to really be sure that it is clear of what their role is going to be, what capabilities they're going to bring to bear, and then also clear of what an agency is going to be expected to provide and how those will work together.
2: Let's talk about a controversial issue. When the administration announced the elimination of the cyber coordinator position, a number of mines exploded in the national capital region. Curious and I have both worked in the White House. We've both been in positions where we've worked for coordinators. And it takes more than an individual and a title to actually deliver policy and to deliver the type of results that one would want. Nonetheless, though, there are legitimate questions of, you're a busy man. You're wearing two hats. You have the NSC, by definition, is a small staff. How has the removal of a cyber coordinator, number one, impacted your job? I assume you're going to say it really hasn't. But if you don't, that's okay. But more importantly, do you think it sent a wrong message to folks outside the beltway about how the administration is prioritizing cyber within its portfolio of issues that it has to deal with?
0: I think it's clear that the administration has a focus on cybersecurity, starting with Executive Order 13800 at the beginning of the administration, continuing on at the end of last month with the national cyber strategy, the first cyber strategy we've had in 15 years. But it really goes to what actions are being done and what work's being done. And so we've continued to have engagement. You know That executive order really served as a rallying point For the most part for federal government, but also for some industry involvement as well around those deliverables and identifying what it is we need to do to enhance our national cybersecurity. The national cyber strategy goes even further as a call to action for government and industry around what steps do we need to take and how are we going to enhance both our national security and our economic security through better hardening of our cyber capabilities. You know, you ask how it's affected me personally. If anything, I do more events like this. Otherwise, though, inside of the National Security Council, it was the only coordinator role. You've worked for coordinators. I think titles and roles change from administration to administration. But what matters is that focus on cybersecurity and the actions that are being undertaken both at different agencies, Homeland Security, and at the White House around this topic.
2: I think at the end of the day, it's less about the title and more about the list of actions that you do. We have seen top-heavy EOPs, executive offices of the presidency, on this issue, and less has been accomplished. And so it really depends not on who the person or the individual is, but what you're doing in actual policy.
1: In looking at industry because this is an interesting piece as this administration has arguably brought industry in more effectively in cybersecurity than any previous administration. And I think looking at the strategy and you talk about it being the first strategy in 15 years, which is true in August, I had the opportunity to meet with Ambassador Bolton. He said, you know, we got to get this done because he had just come in and you all work together to execute on it. What were the priorities as you were drafting the strategy? What were the leading priorities? Because this obviously focused a lot on, to your earlier point, deterrence, but also appropriate response when something has happened and consequences. Could you just lay out a little bit when the strategy was being developed, what were those overarching themes that you wanted to make sure were addressed from the intent of the strategy?
0: I would say from the intent of the strategy, a lot of it built on the work from the executive order, 13800, and all the deliverables from the executive order that really became manifested. And so if you looked at the main priorities, certainly federal cybersecurity, right, we need to protect and defend all of the data and information the government's holding, our citizen data and other services we provide to citizens. Critical infrastructure, we need to understand and identify what is the role of the federal government in protecting critical infrastructure, the majority of which is owned and operated by private industry. How can we bring national capabilities to bear in that environment and what is the balance? What is the expectation of the owner operator and what is the expectation and role for the federal government? Also, combating cybercrime, a significant amount of the malicious activity in the internet is criminal in nature and not nation state. Obviously, nation state is a very big concern The last one I'll mention on the defensive, and then I'll shift a little bit to more of the international, is the workforce. So the need for an American cybersecurity workforce, and that's not just people who work in the basements, it's people throughout the workforce that have an awareness and understanding of cybersecurity challenges and opportunities. And it's not a government workforce, it's a workforce for private industry to recruit from as well. And then I think as you look at sort of pillars three and four in the strategy, they start to lay out and look at what do we need to do to work with our international partners? So how do we work with like-minded partners to establish norms of behavior? What do we expect? How do we expect actors to behave in cyberspace? And then how do we hold people accountable? And then The accountability piece, which is how do we do a deterrence, so we want to deter malicious activity in cyberspace, and how do we hold malicious actors accountable? And this goes back to the sanctions, indictments, you know, other tools that we can bring forward. But I think the overarching for the strategy for the national cyber strategy – is how do we view cyber is one of the many tools or elements of power for the government. It's not that you fight cyber with cyber necessarily. Cyber is a tool that can be used in a variety of different forms, and a variety of other tools can be brought into response or reaction to cyber activities as well.
1: So you talk about critical infrastructure, you talk about the activity of nation states, and you talk about the tools of cybersecurity. Let me just step into social media for a moment. So we have... This company, Facebook, that came to D.C., we had the CEO say, you know, let's talk about regulation. How are you looking at those technology companies, the social media companies, but others that do now have an enormous amount of power looking at their engagements with nation states and looking at their impact to the point that you made earlier on national and economic security? What is the approach that you think government should take to engage with those companies because they don't fall into our traditional definitions of critical infrastructure, but by all accounts, they have some of the same impact and are equally important?
0: I think there's two different elements to your question. One is, and you mentioned Facebook and social media companies, that have a significant capacity from an influence standpoint, right? And really, people trying to influence elections is not new. People trying to influence (laughs) lots of things is not new. However, the scope and scale and speed at which that can happen due to technology that we have today and due to social media has really heightened that. It has the potential to actually probably have far more impact than it has in the past. I think government has to directly engage with those industries. We need an open dialogue on how we can deal with this because this is not a government problem. It's a national challenge. And I think we need to have an open dialogue on how to move forward along those lines. The second piece of that. Is more around our classic IT providers who also are not inside the core of what we think of Section 9 critical infrastructure folks, but if a whole bunch of our energy companies are reliant on a web service or a cloud service for capabilities, then all of a sudden that cloud service also seems to come in as a piece of the critical infrastructure. And so as we look at critical infrastructure, you know, it is about dependencies. And where we have common dependencies, we've got to identify what the government's role is going to be in ensuring that those dependencies are viable and continue to operate all the time, but certainly whenever we have a crisis.
2: Did you hear that collective shudder in the Pacific Northwest over cloud being critical infrastructure? What? But it's true. I mean, it's true. And I think government is always behind the curve when it comes to policy catching up with technology and the reality that we're in. That's the nature of the beast. We're getting there, but it is still a conversation in its infancy about how does government work with non-identified critical infrastructure companies who actually play a role in our nation's economic and national security. And the cloud companies are category number one. Social media has now become critical infrastructure. And so you got to accelerate the conversation here so that three, four years down the road, we're not saying, and, you know, we're making incremental progress and getting AWS and Azure and others to better understand their roles and responsibilities as a critical infrastructure. How do you accelerate
0: that process? I think the challenge is a, even broader than that, right? Cybersecurity is everyone's problem and everyone's responsibility. And it is something that plays into all of us as consumers, as providers, that we need to be thinking and looking for ways of how is cybersecurity and a company's ability to have better cybersecurity a discriminator when we go to buy their product or service? And how do we basically get the awareness in the nation that that's something that we should expect? It's almost impossible today to go buy the more secure webcam if you walk into your retail store. However, we need to get to where it is in some way clear so that consumers understand what they're getting and what their level of risk that they're choosing to accept as we all make our individual risk decisions, but not just as individual consumers, but in our professional lives as well. So this is a dialogue. Again, I think it's got to be a dialogue that we have to ensure that we understand all the points of view. One of the reasons that I think, to your point, policy often lags technology, is that we have to be really careful about the second and third order effects of what our policies are gonna be because they tend to last a long time and they tend to have impacts that we can't always predict. So I think the healthy dialogue in my mind helps us try to predict those second and third order effects.
1: And I think that dialogue is critical, too, because we have this ongoing discussion around technology, which is, do you move security away from the end user? Do you educate the end user? And I don't think that there's, exactly, (laughs) it's not an either or, what are the policies that encourage industry to do the right thing? But that happens with dialogue. It doesn't happen with you need to do this. And then it's understanding how do we create that education and awareness, which goes to the next point about procurement that we wanted to ask you. And it's looking at what can we do to improve the procurement process and looking at where you sit at the Office of Management and Budget and the National Security Council, what are you looking for from industry to do this better? So to the point about dialogue, procurement, everyone always looks to government, make it better, but it's actually an industry government collaboration. And so what do you need from industry to help government procurement work better?
0: So from industry, I talk about there's four attributes that we really need on tools and capabilities as they're being developed. One is that they need to be simple. So tools and capabilities need to be simple. We can't have tons and tons of training that is required in order to implement them. Second is we need tools that are agile and that are going to be able to solve tomorrow's problems. Inside the federal government, it takes us a while to acquire and procure items. And so we often have to be acquiring on, you know, six months ago's uh, request for proposal for something we're going to get six months from now. And therefore, it's got to be agile. Third is that they have to be horizontally integrated. And what I mean by that is we need things that work together. We need things that are more open and more standards based and more interoperable and less proprietary um, because in the government, we end up buying a couple of everything. And so we are never going to be in a homogeneous environment. We're not going to be able to get to one. The incentive structure around our acquisition process is not going to lead us there. And then finally, they have to be secure. So they need to be secure in and of themselves. They need to interoperate securely. And we occasionally see where we have an incident, and it was because on the 12th page of the configuration for the security settings under advanced mode, someone didn't check a checkbox, right? That's not simple, it's not intuitive, it's not integrated, and it's not really the type of security we need. We want the functionality and the flexibility, but it's gotta come out of the box in a very secure manner.
2: I think I can say, since we're both in the private sector now, here's what industry would ask of you. Do what you can to fix the dumpster fire known as the procurement process right now. In particular, I think one that's been highlighted is the protest process. What a lot of people outside the Beltway do not understand is the amount of time, taxpayer money, and actually impact it has on our network security The way the protest process works when there's a multi-billion dollar award and either the incumbent or another party who didn't win it immediately throws a challenge flag and says, nope, we want to protest this, delays the process six months if you're lucky, 12 months to 18 to 24 months if you're being realistic. Hundreds, if not millions of dollars are being wasted on this, and the end result is there was no violation of the procurement process, but the incumbent or the losers decided to do that to try and position themselves to maintain some semblance of hope to recapture it. That's not good government, and this is a bipartisan failure. When I was doing this back in the early 2000s, it happened. That's the biggest message we get from industry, from large industry that we've got to reform the protest process so that you get the technology and the capabilities you need faster. We're not wasting money and actually the security of our government networks improves not just incrementally but quicker.
1: One solution that we've heard to that and interested to get your thought is the idea that if you protest you have to put some skin in the game. Which is, I think, one of the most probably effective structures, which is you're liable for a certain percentage if the protest fails. And if it doesn't fail, then you win anyway.
2: If you lose, you forfeit that money to the U.S. Treasury. You said you saw rounders the other night again, so you're putting in the ante.
1: But it's having that ability to invest in the process beyond just being able to throw the challenge flag out without any consequences. And this goes to your other point around there seems to be more focused on the consequences of these issues.
2: And we'll let you answer, but it's going to drive you crazy. I mean, where you sit in OMB and NSC and you watch
0: the agencies having to do
2: this, it's got to drive you nuts because it's impacting your ability to achieve your
0: objectives. So it does drive me crazy. I would say the process we have is a result of the incentive structure we have in place. And so, Kirsten, to your point, the idea of having companies put some skin in the game, having some actual risk for losing the protests, I think is a great idea.
1: You could probably fund a whole other project with that.
2: Pave roads, you know, use it at the the protest failure and it's now we're going to pave a road. I love it.
0: It is something that we have to be able to solve because the incentive structure that we have right now just leads us to an environment where, again, there is not a penalty for putting in a protest. If I can delay someone moving off one contract onto another, there's a clear winner and a clear loser there. We've got to find ways to do that because the acquisition timeline for us It slows down everything. It slows down our ability to get security tools, but it probably more so slows down our ability to modernize our IT. And it is really hard, I think, as everyone knows, to secure older legacy IT systems and capabilities. And so it's really around those big IT solutions where we spend close to $90 billion a year across the federal government. Those delays are costly both in dollars, but they're costly in lack of capabilities and lack of actually being able to get something to market as well.
1: And that's assuming that you get the four things you talked about, which are tools and capabilities that are simple, that are agile, that are secure, can be horizontally integrated. You're not there yet either. So it's already working in an imperfect environment, which puts so much more obstruction into it
0: and there's no exit clause for the government if you put a contract in place for five years and it turns out you know you got something that didn't have any of those things or that was the solution or capability the pain quite frankly of going back and doing the acquisition process again to get a new vendor is one that i think a lot of agencies will wait the five years as opposed to starting that process again so
2: you see the problem is you guys have a baseball approach to contracts Every contract is guaranteed, you can't do anything with it, and even if there's failure to performance, you're still going to pay people out. Okay, You need to go to a football approach where a percentage is guaranteed and the rest of it will play out depending on performance. You drop some people because they fall short, and you give others the opportunity to succeed. See? There we go. It all comes back to sports. It's just
1: the Red Sox honeymoon World Series talking. (laughs) Well, this is the
2: day after, so this is the championship edition of Cybercast.
1: I want to talk about a phrase that I've always challenged a little bit because of how it's put. So the cyber moonshot, the NSTAC has spent a lot of time with it. My challenge is that a moonshot is a very binary issue, right? You either get someone on the moon or you don't. The cancer moonshot, you either solve the cure or you don't. Cybersecurity is interdisciplinary. There's so many pieces of this. It's not black and white. There's not a you do this or you don't. But if you're looking at this because there's been so much strong intellectual power put toward this idea of a cyber moonshot... What would be your cyber moonshot from where you sit right now in the White House?
0: I agree with you that it's an imperfect analogy. I would say with all moonshots, it's very interdisciplinary, though, and really the reason that The value that I think the moonshot phrase gets us is that it brings in people who don't necessarily think they're part of this challenge and it lets them start thinking about it. Because the visuals that come and just the I can dream and I can understand the idea of going and doing something that we don't know how to do and that is very much a challenge. And so for me, a big part of it is that cultural piece. So it's around awareness and it's around making sure that everyone understands, as we've discussed, that they are a part of the solution or need to be a part of the cybersecurity solution. I'm very much looking forward to the paper from Instac that they're looking to deliver to the president next month. And that I think is going to provide some recommendations and some ways forward, and and really some things that, from a policy standpoint at the White House, we can look at and say, okay, what is it in here that we can put some real policy around that's going to drive behavior and drive results across the country?
2: Okay, Grant, to wrap up, we're going to play a game on Cybercast. The game is called When I Say, You Then Say. Okay? So, in other words, when I say mobile devices, you say... Scary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like this game. (laughs) This is a good game. All right, so that's the first one. Kirsten. When I say artificial intelligence, you say...
2: Opportunities. When I say identity and access management, you say...
0: Critically important for everything around security.
1: When I say Capitol Hill, you say...
0: Our partners... (laughs)
2: That is well done. That is well done. And this from someone who doesn't have to go up to the hill. So that was well said. When I say blockchain, you
1: say? Intriguing. That's way too diplomatic. Come on, say it. Time will tell. (laughs) That's better. And because I've teased this throughout the entire podcast, when I say elections, you say? All two weeks away,
0: then two years away, then two years away, then two years away. This is a gift that's going to keep on giving.
2: Like the old Breck shampoo commercial. They told two friends and so on and so on and so on. So because this is the championship edition, we'll close with the following. Kristen's going to shake her head. So not many people outside the National Capital Region know who you are. Many people didn't really know who Steve Pierce was with the Boston Red Sox. But Steve Pierce is now the MVP of the World Series because he delivered in times and places when it was critically needed. And because of where you sit and the roles that you have, you have that Steve Pierce-like responsibility. We're grateful to have you on the show. We want to thank you for what you're doing. We certainly hope, like Steve Pierce, you walk away with a brand new Chevy and the Willie Mays Trophy in a few years.
1: (laughs) Your role is unique. It's the first time we've seen it and you are doing a tremendous job balancing this. And as we talked about earlier, this is not a partisan issue and you're creating success and outcomes and deliverables in a space that's always been very difficult. And we thank you for your service and for all that you're doing. And yes, may that red Chevy be waiting patiently for you in uh, two years. Two years. Two years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Grant. Thanks
1: so much, Grant, for your time.
0: Thanks for helping to bring awareness to cybersecurity. It is obviously a huge challenge. I know that I've had a lot of conversations with folks about what their challenges are. There's been a lot of conversations around doing the basics. How do we do the basic patching and how do we modernize our IT? But also a lot around, for me, the culture and the workforce and the need for just more people who have awareness, whether they're cyber experts, whether they're technologists or they're senior leaders inside or outside of government, but really how do we get more people to understand the challenges and the opportunities in this space?
2: Absolutely.
1: Thank you very much, Grant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybercast.
2: You can find Cybercast on Apple Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review.